Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. This morning's passage, Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 through 17, is a genealogy. A genealogy. Not just any genealogy, but the genealogy of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Genealogies are interesting things, at least for some people. I remember as a boy, my father got interested in the history of the Forsyth family name. There was a fellow that he worked with who was sort of an amateur historian and liked to research family names. And he also had some artistic ability, so he would sketch people's coat of arms, family coat of arms. And so my dad got kind of intrigued and wanted to know the history of the Forsyth family name and what the coat of arms would look like. And, and so he gave that guy some money to, to do some research and, and to sketch up the Forsyth family coat of arms so that we could have a look at it. And so he gave the fellow the money and we waited a few months and we were, we were kind of anxious to see what this might all turn out to be. And so the big day came and dad came home from the office and he had this, this large package all wrapped in brown paper. And, and so we all gathered around for him to tear the wrapping off and we could see the Forsyth family coat of arms. So he tore the brown paper off and, and we looked in. Oh, wow, it was magnificent. For a little boy, it was so exciting because it had these creatures, they're called griffins, and they're the body of a lion with the the head and the wings of an eagle. And they were on the shield, and, and that just fired up my imagination. I was positive that I came from royalty and was probably the true king of Scotland. It was really funny because sometime later, my maternal grandfather was visiting and, of course, we had to show him the Forsyth family coat of arms. And, and so that got him thinking. And uh, my mother's side of the family, the last name is Southwick, and, and they can trace themselves back to the American Revolution. And, and so my grandfather got excited about the possibility of researching the Southwick side of the family to see what that might be all about. And so he paid this fellow some money and uh, waited for him to do his research and to sketch up the Southwick coat of arms. And so after an appropriate amount of time, the, uh, my dad brought the package home and my grandparents uh, showed up for the grand unveiling and, and they tore off the brown paper wrapping and, and there was the Southwick family shield with flowers on it. <laughs> my grandfather was so disappointed. In fact, he put it in the closet, and I don't believe he ever took it out after that. He was just so, I mean, there was nothing cool on it, just flowers, just flowers. Well, this morning's text here in Matthew chapter 1 is a genealogy. It is a lineage. And these are difficult for us moderns. We, we tend to approach these as flyover zone in the uh, Bible. We get to First Chronicles in our through-the-year Bible readings, and we groan for a couple of days because we have to read hard name, begat, hard name, begat, hard name, right? And the truth of the matter is, is we don't care much about any of that. But that would not be true for a Jewish person, particularly of the first century. That would not be true at all. A person's genealogical records were critical. They were what determined property inheritance rights. What family you came from determined what part of the promised land belonged to your family. Genealogical records were absolutely essential to prove one's descendants and thus qualifications to enter into the priesthood. And coming back from the Babylonian captivity, there was a problem with some who could not prove their unbroken lineage of priesthood and thus they were excluded. But probably most significant of all, it was any 
claim to be the Messiah, the King of Israel, one must be able to demonstrate an unbroken legal descent from David. The records must be unimpeachable. There there must be no doubt about whose family you are from. And so Matthew, as he is beginning his gospel here, and as we know, the gospel of the kingdom, he is proving that Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah. And the way to do that is to begin with his genealogy. And so that's exactly what Matthew does here. He wants to substantiate right up front that he is the rightful heir to the throne. He is the king of Israel. If he cannot demonstrate this through a genealogy at the beginning, there is no point in writing anything more. It begins and it ends here with the genealogy. And so Matthew does just that. He establishes for us a genealogy that will trace the lineage of Jesus of Nazareth back to Abraham and to David the king. It begins in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let me stop right there for a moment and give you a quiz. Two weeks ago, we spent an entire message looking at the implication of his descent from Abraham and David. And I told you there was two things that you should never, ever forget, and you needed to write them down in your Bible So that when I say Davidic covenant, this side says 2 Samuel 7. There you go. Very good. And when I say Abrahamic covenant, this side says Genesis 12, 15, 17. You got it. All right. You got it. 2 Samuel 7, Genesis 12, 15, 17. Essential, critical key text for the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant. Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Verse 2. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac, Jacob. And to Jacob, Judah and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram. And to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab, Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon. And a salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. And a Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. And to Obed, Jesse. And to Jesse was born David the king. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam. And to Rehoboam, Abijah. And to Abijah, Asa. And to Asa was born Jehoshaphat. And to Jehoshaphat, Joram. And to Joram, Uzziah. And to Uzziah was born Jotham. And to Jotham, Ahaz. And to Ahaz, Hezekiah. And to Hezekiah was born Manasseh. And to Manasseh, Ammon. And to Ammon, Josiah. And to Josiah was born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel, and to Shealtiel, Zerubbabel. And to Zerubbabel was born Abihud, and to Abihud, Eliakim, and to Eliakim, Azor. And to Azor was born Zadok, and to Zadok, Akim, and to Akim, Elihud, and to Elihud was born Eliezer. And to Eliezer, Mathan. And to Mathan, Jacob. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. <coughs> Excuse me. Matthew arranges his, geolo- his genealogy here to substantiate his claim. That Jesus is the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. 
And he does it by arranging a genealogy around three sets of 14 generations, verse 17. There are three sets of generations, 14 names per generation. (coughs) Pardon me. These generations comport to the three pieces of the history of Israel up to that time. The first set of 14 names is the rise of the Davidic kingdom. It begins in verse 2 and runs until the first part of verse 6, ending with the expression, to Jesse was born David the king. The idea is you pause. So there are 14 generations in the rise of the Davidic kingdom to the height of David the king, he who was chosen and anointed by God as king of Israel. But from there, the nadar of their reign, there begins a slow, gradual, steady fall of the glory of the nation of Israel. And so from the second half of verse 6 to David was born Solomon and then ending in verse 11 to Jeconiah and his brothers, we find the deportation to Babylon. So the kingdom rises to its height in David, and then it begins to fall away. David hands it to Solomon, and Solomon is unable to hang on to that which has been gifted to him. And so the process of the, of the failure of the Davidic throne is played out in the next 14 generations. The fall of the Davidic kingdom. Then Matthew structures for us One more list of 14 names. And this is to be an encouragement. It is to to bring light and hope. This is the rise of the consolation of Israel. This is the the restoration of the Davidic throne, the Davidic kingdom. And so it goes from the deportation to Babylon, beginning in verse 12, where it rises to the birth of Mary's child, Jesus. Matthew would have us see this as the, the revival, the restoration, the, re, the, uh, the return of the line of Davidic kings. And what he is communicating to us up front here by this genealogy and to his readers is that things are going to get better now. Things will get better. Because the Davidic king has returned. He's here. He's ready. Now, it's interesting the way Matthew put this genealogy together. He did it in these three groups of 14 names. And to do that, he had to do a little work with the genealogy. Why he chose to put it together this way, we can only speculate on. Certainly, to memorize would be a little bit easier if it were in three groupings, 14 names to a group. And so perhaps that's part of the reason he structured it this way. In order to do this, he actually had to leave out some of the connecting links. For example, verse 8, if you look at the end of verse 8, and I'm just sort of making some observations here for you in the text, but it says at the end of verse 8, to Joram Uzziah. Now, if you were to know your history of the kings of Israel very well, or you were to bother to check back, And to to check up on Matthew, you'd find that he left out three kings. He left three names out. (coughs) Excuse me. So this is not an exhaustive list because it wasn't Matthew's purpose to create an exhaustive list. All he needed to do was to tie things together to present the legality of Jesus' claim to the throne. It wasn't necessary to have every single link. And so he leaves links out and he does so in order to achieve his symmetry of three sets of 14. Now, the significance of the number 14 is is widely debated among Bible commentators. You can pick up all kinds of commentaries and you can find all kinds of theories as to why he decided to group it into three sets of 14. I offer you one that is interesting to me, uh, plausible certainly, and that is this. There are 14 generations from Abraham to David. 
to begin the list. Furthermore, David, the king, his name, if you just take the consonants of his name and you, add, and you apply the mathematical value of each of those consonants, and in the Hebrews would do that, they, each letter has a, has a mathematical value, so his name begins with D, the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, it's a four. The middle consonant is a V or a W, depending how you want to pronounce it, and that would be a six. And then it would end with a D again, which is a four. So four plus six plus four equals 14. I don't know if that's the answer, but it's sort of interesting. Sort of interesting. 14 names to David. David, the mathematical value of his name is 14. Maybe Matthew arranged it on that basis. I don't know. I don't know, but it is interesting. Whether that's compelling to you or not is irrelevant. I just have to say that. Whether you find this genealogy compelling or not is actually irrelevant. Because it was written to a, to a group of people in a day and an age when this would be very compelling. Exceedingly compelling. To a first century Jew who had come to faith in Messiah, this genealogy, the way it's arranged, the way it's presented, would be an exceedingly compelling case. There's something else, though, with this genealogy that I want to look at with you this morning. Something else that's connected with this genealogical table. One other unusual feature of this genealogy. And that is that it includes the names of four flawed women. There are four women who appear in this genealogy. Now, the inclusion of female names in a genealogy is somewhat rare. Not impossible, but somewhat rare. So it's a little bit remarkable that there are female names included in the genealogy to begin with. But what makes it jump off the page is the character of the four women who are included. All four of these women are tainted in some fashion. There is something tawdry about their background that would make you normally want to forget about them rather than include them in your genealogy. As you're looking back through your ancestral history, there are certain high points and low points. And normally you accentuate the high points and you gloss over the low points. But Matthew doesn't do that. In fact, Matthew, it seems like he scours the genealogy looking for the lowest points, the blackest marks that he can find. And those are the names that he includes here for us. Why? What is his purpose? Why would he do such a thing? Well, let me suggest to you that these flawed women are examples of grace. These flawed women are examples of grace. And from their lives, we can learn some important lessons regarding our own relationship with Israel's Messiah. That what Matthew is doing by including these names is he's sort of foreshadowing the rest of the book. He is giving us a a glimpse, a, a peek, a hint at what will develop as he completes his writings. So he includes these four names. What I would like to do this morning is just somewhat quickly review the character of these four women and then make a few observations, draw out what I think are three very important lessons that can be derived from the lives of these four women. So let us begin with the first woman. And for that, you'll have to go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 38 Tamar, Tamar, verse 3 of Matthew 1. The first woman listed in Messiah's pedigree is Tamar. She is a most interesting character. I've been debating with myself all morning whether to read the text or summarize the text. 
I'm getting clues from the front row that says summarize. So I'll summarize. Tamar. Here's the situation. Chapter 37 of Genesis, Joseph has just been sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. Now it came about at that time, verse 1, chapter 38, that Judah, one of the 12 brothers, departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was in Kezib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. And that's when the wheels fall off. Judah's firstborn son, it says, verse 7, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and God killed him. Then Judah, following what was the custom of called a Leverite marriage, he took the widow, Tamar, and gave to his second son that he might raise up offspring to his dead brother. But he didn't want to do that. And the reason he didn't want to do that likely is he didn't want to share the family estate. If he raises up offspring to his dead older brother, then the family estate has to be shared three ways. If he doesn't, only has to be split in half. And so he fails to perform his responsibilities under what was called the law of the Leverite marriage. And so God slays him too. Now Judah at this point has one son left. And so he promises his third and youngest son to Tamar, but he has no intention of following through on the promise. Basically, he thinks she's like a back widow, you know, kind of eats their mate. And so he's very afraid of giving his son to this woman. He may die too. So he makes her the promise, but he has no intention of carrying it out. And he sends her to her father's house to wait. Fast forward, Judah's wife dies. Judah himself, after an appropriate period of mourning, is going up to shear his sheep. It's a time of festivities, and, and uh, Judah, for whatever reasons, is going along the way, and Tamar, by this time, has realized there's no way her father-in-law is going to give her to his final son, and thus she has been cut off from bearing a child. And so she takes matters into her own hands. She disguises herself as a temple prostitute and appropriately sits along the way. And Judah comes along and he can't help himself. And so he propositions her, offers her certain very personal items, such as what's called his seal. That is, is it would be like his signet ring in exchange for her services. And then he says that he'll bring her a kid from the sheep sharing to pay her her fee and he'll retrieve his signet ring. She conceives by her father-in-law. The father-in-law sends the sheep. Judah sends the sheep by the hand of his friend. And when his friend gets there, she's gone. And everybody says, hey, there's never been any temple prostitutes around here. I don't know what you're talking about. Judah says, we've been duped. We've been had. But we're not going to tell anybody because we'll be a laughingstock. And he goes back home. Three months later, his daughter-in-law turns up pregnant. Judah says, bring her out and let's burn her. She says, by the way, I'm pregnant by the man whose signet ring this is. Would you like to take a look at it? He takes a look at it and goes, right? And then he makes that amazing statement. Verse 26 Judah recognizes them, and he said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. It's a really enigmatic statement there. I think what he's saying is that basically she understood the, the, the rules of the Leverite marriage, and he was refusing her what was lawfully hers, and so she took matters into her own hands. I think that's the general idea. She bears a, actually twin sons in her womb, says verses 27 and following. Perez and Zerah. It turns out that 
Perez is the younger son, but he supersedes his brother in the genealogy. So we have this woman, Tamar. A woman who resorts to trickery. A woman who resorts to prostitution in order to force her father-in-law to fulfill his responsibilities to her that she might bear a son and might continue the family lineage of Judah, the tribe. And Matthew picks up her story and includes it in his genealogy. The next woman that Matthew includes is a woman by the name of Rahab. We meet her over in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. The nation has wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because of their disobedience. They are now to enter into the land. Moses will not be able to go with them because of his disobedience. And so Joshua, his young lieutenant, is to now take the people into the land. Joshua wants to know what he's going to encounter, so he sends some spies into the land ahead of him in order to check it out, find out how strong it is and what kind of a fight he'll have on his hands. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot or a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about, when it was time to shut the gate at dark, that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the terror of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. But we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. To Sihon and to Og whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we shall deal kindly and faithfully with you. Stop right there. So she completes the transaction. She shelters them in her house overnight and then lowers them down for her house was built, it says on the wall, I think more literally between the outer and inner walls. She lowers them down by a rope from her window and they get away. And they tell her, tie a scarlet thread in the window so that when we come and attack the city of Jericho, all who are within your home, when we attack, will be spared. Anyone outside the home, their blood is on their own head. If anything happens to someone in the home, then the blood for their innocent blood will be upon our heads. And so that's the deal she makes. And they escape and report back to Joshua that the people in the land are trembling and are ripe for invasion. Now she's an interesting character. Rahab. She's come to have a last name for most of us. It's Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the brothel owner. Rahab the independent businesswoman. Rahab the one whose character 
is soiled. The one who nobody would want to own up to. Certainly, no one would be proud to have within their, their lineage, their genealogy. And yet, here is this remarkable woman who sides with the nation of Israel against her own people, delivers the spies, and thus, in a sense, delivers the city of Jericho, the great walled city of Jericho, the gateway into the promised land. She delivers it into the hand of the armies of Israel. Fascinating character. That takes us to the third, the third woman in the lineage of Messiah. For her, we have to turn to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. Now it came about in those days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Mahlon and Kilion also died, And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Stop there. This is the woman, the woman Ruth. She is one of these two Moabite women who were taken to be married to a son of Israel. She is a Moabitess. She is a foreigner. She is an idol worshiper. She is a descendant of the tribe of Moab. The tribe of Moab was brought into existence through the incestuous union of Lot and his older daughter, according to Genesis 19. The Moabites were the perpetual enemies of the nation of Israel. There was animosity between Israel and the Moabites throughout their histories. In fact, as a Moabite woman, as a Moabitess, Ruth had no right at all to enter into the congregation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, Moses writes, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. This woman is cut off from Israel. This woman is a pagan idolater and should have, can have, by right, by law, nothing to do with the nation of Israel. And yet she ends up in the lineage of Messiah. So let's review the bidding so far. We have Tamar. We have Rahab. Now we have Ruth. Let's add one more name. The fourth outcast. The fourth outcast. This woman, according to Matthew, he doesn't even put a name on her. Matthew calls her, her who had been the wife of Uriah. He doesn't even put the name Bathsheba on her. She is the one who had been the wife of Uriah. I think perhaps he doesn't give her, use her name, is because he he wants to highlight the wickedness of the circumstances into which, by which she comes into the line of Messiah. She had been the wife of Uriah. We have to turn to 2 Samuel 
chapter 11, just a few chapters beyond chapter 7, in which we find the, oh, come on, in which we find the Davidic covenant, thank you, Second Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, there we go. We have to turn a few chapters beyond that to Second Samuel chapter 11 to find the narrative of her who had been the wife of Uriah. Second Samuel 11, beginning in verse 1. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? By the way, she is the granddaughter of Ahithophel, just if you're locking things in chronologically. She is the granddaughter of Ahithophel, who was David's counselor, who later betrayed him, remember? Verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, she lay with him. Try it again. When she came to him, he lay with her. There we go. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. At this point, David is in an absolute fix, a quandary. And so he decides to take manners into his own hands and he devises the most vile and wicked of schemes. And that is first to try to to entice Uriah to come back from battle, to go home, to lay with his wife so that, that Uriah will think the child is his. And so he calls Uriah home, but Uriah won't go and lay with his wife. He sleeps in the doorway of the palace. David says, how can I, or Uriah says, how can I go home and sleep with my wife when all my other, you know, fellow soldiers are under harsh conditions of battle? I won't do it. By the way, Uriah is part of David's private bodyguard. Very loyal man. David then decides to get him drunk, figuring that that will do it. So he gets Uriah drunk, but Uriah drunk is more righteous than David sober. And Uriah still won't go home. So David decides the only thing he can do is murder him. So he writes a note and he puts it in Uriah's hand. And he says, hand deliver this message to Joab, the commander of the armies. And in the note it says, place Uriah at the, at the place of fiercest fighting and then withdraw from him. Abandon him. Let the enemy soldiers kill him. And so Joab does just that, and Uriah is killed. Verse 26, chapter 11. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. By the way, I don't think we should implicate her in this. I don't think we should. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God killed that child. God caused that child to die. Chapter 12, verse 24. (coughs) And David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went into her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son. And he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Word means beloved of the Lord. So Bathsheba is the mother of Solomon. Turn back to Matthew chapter 1, page 957, if you're using a pew Bible. Let's see if we can draw this to a close. These are unbelievably difficult narratives. The the extent of the wickedness involved in the lives of each of these 
women. It's just incredible. And yet God would have us learn a few things from their lives. So let me see if I can outline them for you quickly. I'm not going to fully develop them. I'll let you develop them. But let me give you some some guidance as you go. What do you do with something like this? Well, let me suggest to you that the first important lesson we can draw from the lives of these three women is that grace is greater than all of our sin. Amen? I told you, I think Matthew is foreshadowing. If you look over in chapter 1 to verse 21, you'll see in the, in the statement about the child that she will bear a son. This is the, the dream that Joseph has. She will bear a son, and you shall name, call his name Jesus. And this is what I want you to see. For it is he who will save his people from their what? Sins. All sins. Including the most vile and wicked of sins that Matthew has outlined for us in the genealogy. Grace greater than all of our sin. No one's background or past places them outside of the grace of God. Matthew would have us know that. There is nobody beyond the reach of the grace of God. There is none of us who has done anything or had anything done to us that would somehow place us outside of the reach of the saving grace of God. And we should rejoice in such news. We should rejoice in it. I also think that no clearer illustration can be found for Jesus' statement to the Pharisees that he records over here in in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13. Where he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Interestingly, by the way, Matthew includes this in the account of his own calling unto salvation, verse 9. Matthew understood for himself as a tax collector who was ostracized from society to considered an outcast, considered to be beyond the reach of God, that God in Christ had reached out to him. And so Matthew knows that God in Christ can reach out to anyone. And he illustrates it through the lives of these four women. Beyond that, it's good for us to remember that although the grace of God is greater than all our sin, there's still a sense in which old sins cast long shadows. Old sins cast long shadows. There, there are consequences to sin. Some of those consequences God chooses not to alleviate or eliminate. Again, David's life with Bathsheba is a great illustration of that. Because of the wickedness of his sin, sin came into his household. And David's greatest enemies were those that rose up within his own family. Did God overwhelm in grace the sin of David and Bathsheba? Yes. Did God eliminate some of the consequences of such a vile and wicked activity? No, he did not. So the first lesson is grace is greater than all of our sin. Second lesson that I think Matthew would have us see, and again, I believe it's a foreshadowing. And the lesson is this, that Gentiles are welcome into the kingdom of Israel. Gentiles are welcome into the kingdom of Israel. Take a look at chapter 8 and verse 10. This is where Jesus heals a servant of the Roman centurion. Verse 10. Now, when Jesus heard this, that is the centurion's statement about being in submission, he marveled. And he said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew's gospel written to believing Jews presents believing Gentiles in a very 
positive, favorable light. And I think that in chapter 1, by including these women in the genealogy, he is foreshadowing that reality. We absolutely know for sure that Rahab and Ruth were Gentiles. They were outside of the covenant people of Israel. It's likely that Tamar was, and perhaps Bathsheba herself, married to Uriah, who was a Hittite, a mercenary from outside of the nation. We know for sure two of the four were, likely the other two were as well. The point of the matter is that Matthew is showing us that even in the lineage of Messiah, Gentiles have a place at the table. Now that excites me. And the reason that excites me is that my lineage and that really cool shield that was sketched out for us does not go back to Israel. My really cool lineage goes back to the barbarian peoples of Scotland. Pagans, devil worshipers, cut off from God. And yet, I have been brought near through the blood of Christ, Israel's Messiah. I have been made through faith, by grace, a partaker in the promises of the new covenant. A new heart I've been given. The Holy Spirit residing within me. A desire and an ability to live in obedience to the God of the universe. And my friends, those who join me here, Gentiles, which is the vast majority of you, you too have the same inheritance. Praise God that Israel's Messiah is open to us. Third, third lesson. It is by grace through faith that we come into a saving relationship with the Messiah of Israel. And it is a faith that reveals itself by a changed life and a changed allegiance. It is not a mere profession of faith that brings one into relationship with the Messiah of Israel. It is a changed heart that brings one into relationship. And a changed heart reveals itself externally in observable changes of life and allegiance. And we see that very, very clearly in the lives of at least two of these women. Rahab. Rahab. Joshua chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to her profession of faith. For the Lord, that is Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. That is a profession of faith. And she backs up her words by sheltering the spies, going against her people and turning over the city. She heard, she believed, and she acted. Ruth, the Moabitess, her profession of faith can be found in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 16, where she says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. She turns from Chemosh to Yahweh. From idols to the living God. And she demonstrated the reality of this by leaving her homeland, abandoning all that was familiar to her, and going as a a wanderer back under the wings of the God of Israel that he might provide for her. It is by grace through faith that we are saved. It is not by bare profession of alone. God would have you turn to him in faith. God would have you this morning, if you do not know the living God, if you have not surrendered your allegiance to the God of Israel, to the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, that God would call to you right now, right where you are, to turn to him in faith. A faith that would cling to him with all that you have and and would so transform your allegiance that from this day forth, you would be a follower of God. 
That's what he would have for you. John MacArthur writes, in reflecting on this passage, if God has called sinners by grace to be his forefathers, should we be surprised when he calls them by grace to be his descendants? No, we should not be surprised at all. My friends, call out to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Messiah of Israel. We thank you for sending him for your people. We thank you for fulfilling the ancient promises. And we thank you for throwing wide open the doors of grace to us who are once far off, once who were not a people, have now been called as the people of God. And I pray, O oh Lord, for those here this morning who are outside of the family of God, who have not yet experienced your saving grace. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would you would pour it forth on them even now. Open their eyes to see the truth of their condition, their need for a Savior. Open their ears to hear the message of Christ as He calls to them. and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. O Lord, do your divine work among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.